Okay, well, after a couple of, a couple of weeks' break, we, I want to come back to the series that we're um, in the midst of in the book of Acts. We're making our way through the book of Acts. And um, if you've been here, you remember that what's happening for the early church is that a great persecution has just broken out. And basically that started with the, the terrible death of this young man by the name of Stephen. They stoned him to death, the religious leaders. And, and that caused a great persecution, like a wave of persecution to break out against the early church. And it says that all the believers were scattered into the surrounding area. So that's the kind of context that's where we're up to. So if you open your Bible, or it'll be up here, Acts chapter 8. Starts off with verse 4, it says, But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. You may remember I mentioned just a little while ago that uh, it's very significant that the believers preached the gospel, the good news about Jesus wherever they went. It wasn't just the apostles. It wasn't just the, the leaders, but rather everyone preached about Jesus wherever they went. And in fact, their, their life, the way they lived their life, became a proclamation of the gospel. And Luke, the, the writer of Acts, then moved to tell us the story of one of these people. It's like he just has picked one of them as an example who fled persecution in Jerusalem. He tells us the story of a guy by the name of Philip. Verse 5 says, Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Now, Samaria is a very unusual place for a Jew to go. In the first century, many Jews would have travelled out of their way to avoid going into the region of Samaria. In the, the Talmud, the, the religious writings of the rabbis, the region of Samaria was not even considered to be part of the Holy Land. So it's, it's a big deal that these first Christians went to Samaria and preached the good news about Jesus. It's very significant because it shows a great change of heart. It really does. It shows a great change of heart in these early believers as the Holy Spirit reoriented their lives around his values and his purposes. You know, one can imagine that when Philip announced to his friends and family that he was going to flee to Samaria, they may well have replied, you're not serious. You are not serious. Why would you go to those dogs? The Samarians, it's just not right. But the good, Je good news about Jesus can't be for them. But regardless, Philip went and he told the people there about the Messiah. Verse 6 says, Crowds in Samaria listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. And then it says, Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralysed or lame were healed so there was great joy in that city. So, so Philip goes to the Sumerian dogs. And people must have wondered, why on earth are you going there? But when he went there, some amazing things happened. Now, you've got to remember that these Samaritans weren't unaware of the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures. They, they knew the scriptures. They worshipped Yahweh and they awaited the Messiah. Now, if you, you're kind of wondering, well, where do the Sumerians where do they fit in to the big picture? Well, you remember that Israel was exiled in Babylon many hundreds of years before. And then when they were brought back, 
the Jews came back into, into Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but there was a whole lot of other people who also came back as well. And they came back, and in a way they operated as Jews. They worshipped Yahweh, and they, they lived by all the practices, but because their bloodline was not Jewish... The Jews said, no, no, you guys aren't really you know, part of us, and they, and they shunned them. And it, it has gone on and on for many, many years. There was this tension, this conflict between these two groups of people, a bit like we have today in, in Israel. The, you know, there's this con- conflict there. And in fact, I was amazed just this last week, I, I had a look on the net, and there are still 7,800, 751 exactly by their count, people who identify as being Samaritans. And they still worship and, and, and practice as their forebears did. So do you get the picture? There's this tension between the Jews and these kind of half-breeds, the Samaritans. Yet when Philip went to them with the gospel, they responded really well. They showed great interest. They were, they were eager to hear his message and to see the miraculous signs that he did amongst them. And clearly God was working because... Lots of great things happened. And in addition to this, it also seems that there were many demon-possessed people living among them as well. Verse 9 says, A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. So it would seem that this man Simon did indeed possess some kind of supernatural power. Of course, he he may well have been nothing more than a a trickster, deceiving people with sleight of hand kind of tricks. But I think not. The text says, For many years he amazed the people, and everyone from the least to the greatest spoke of him as the Great One the power of God. So I can't help thinking that he probably did perform a type of miracle. However, his power came not from God, but rather from the enemy, from the devil. This Simon was demon-possessed, as were many of those who lived around about him. And we need to remember that verse 7 actually says, many demons were cast out. So he's starting to get the, the complexity. He's starting to see the complexity of what is happening here. Philip goes to Samaria a most unlikely destination to preach the gospel, despite being so close to Jerusalem. It's populated by people considered to be a mongrel race, unworthy of God's grace. But Philip goes anyway. He finds there a group of heavily demonised people who we would expect would be living very sin-filled lives. Yet there are those among them who know the scriptures and are awaiting the Messiah. And on top of that, there's this local dude who for many years has been working miracles in the power of Satan. That's the whole, the whole kind of picture of what's going on. It's, there's a lot happening. So let's read on, verse 12. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptised. Then Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he began following Philip wherever he went. He was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Wow. I mean, they hear the gospel and they respond. These 
Gentile dogs hear the gospel, they hear the good news, and they make a decision to become Christ followers. It says many men and women believed and were baptised, including, believe it or not, this demon-possessed miracle worker, Simon. I mean, Philip must have been just overjoyed with the fruit of his labours. He must have wanted to share the news of this God-given success with the apostles back in Jerusalem, maybe with those who doubted the validity of his mission amongst them. We don't know. What we do know that is that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there to check it out, to see if what they were hearing was correct. Verse 14 says, When the apostles in Jerusalem, remember, everyone fled except the apostles. So there's this little group of leaders that have remained at kind of the headquarters in Jerusalem. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Then it says the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. For they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, if much of this is new to you, what I say, when I say much of this, I mean this whole thinking about God and his world and, and, and seeing the world through different eyes. You know, when you don't believe in God, everything can seem very flat, can't it? But then when you believe in God, it's almost like life thickens up and you see there's this other dimension almost. There's all these things going on. If that's you, and you're still kind of trying to get your head around all of this, maybe those words don't mean all that much to you. But if you've been hanging around with believers, if you've been a Christ follower for any length of time, particularly if you've been part of a a midweek Bible study group, or you've been part of you know, different churches over the years, you'll know that this passage, this story of what happened with the Samaritan believers, has caused an incredible amount of angst in the life of the church over the years. And it, is, it has brought a whole lot of conflict. You see, the issue revolves around what has become known as the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are very sincere brothers and sisters in Christ who see this as a key key verse in teaching that salvation is a two-step process. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've had the Hillsong Conference. 30,000 people have gathered in the name of Jesus in Sydney. It's been this, this huge gathering. In fact, it's said to be the largest gathering of Christians that get together in Australia. Now, the teaching of Hillsong Church and the teaching of Hope You See up here is that there is a double, two-stage kind of thing to this whole business of being saved, that it's a two-step process and that you need to to decide to follow Jesus and then at some stage later, there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not bagging out another church. Don't hear that. I'm just saying that We need to, as Christians, we need to think about what is the Bible teaching us here? 
we need to work this through and come to a conclusion because many of our brothers and sisters in Christ will see this passage a certain way. And we've got to decide, well, which way are we going to read this? You see, they teach that one needs to firstly accept Christ and then secondly, one needs to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. And that's why they'll ask you, have you got the second blessing? Have you been baptised in the Spirit yet? And of course, the proof of this is that you will then speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then you haven't really received the second blessing properly. And I tell you what, that can be quite disconcerting. You see, they cite this passage saying the Samaritans believed in Jesus, they were baptised in his name, yet they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Their conversion was not complete until they had received this second blessing. Do you see how this stands in contrast to the understanding that salvation, that is getting into right relationship with God, comes through turning from our sins and accepting that only Jesus can deal with those sins, and that in an instant, as we confess our sins and put our trust in Jesus alone, that those sins are taken away and that the righteousness of Christ is given to us by grace as a gift who then lives within us. The Holy Spirit then moves in and lives within us from then on, forever, gradually, day by day, transforming us into the likeness of Christ. A one-step, once-for-all event that, if genuine, can never be lost or stolen. Do you see how that stands in direct contrast to this notion that salvation is actually a two-step process? Do you see how distressing it may be for someone who believes they are saved, who believes they are in right relationship with God, to be told that they are not a fully-fledged Christian? Yet... And you see how distressing it be for someone to then ask God for this so-called second blessing only to find out that they don't then start speaking in tongues. Now, I've got to tell you, from my own experience, there was a time when I believed in this second blessing. I did. I believed that that was what needed to happen. But I also have to tell you that, that we have you know, a member of our family who as a 15, 16-year-old was baptised in her local church. She'd grown up in a, a Christian family and she was baptised out the front of the church. And I remember her clearly saying, by doing this, I'm willing to declare that I am full on for Jesus. And that night, the pastor, an associate pastor of the church, said, well, now that you've done this, you now need this second blessing. And because she's the kind of girl who was, you know, had some integrity about her, she said, oh, okay, and then they prayed for it. And then when she didn't just start speaking in tongues, he had a go at her and kind of said, well, you're not really saved. You're not, you know, the real deal. And it's very distressing for me to tell you that now 35 years later, she still doesn't go to church. She just walked away. She actually moved out of her home. She moved out of her home at 16. And that was like this beginning point. So this is a big deal. It really is. I mean, I, I've got to tell you, from my experience, 
I believed that this was the case because I had people that taught me that I needed this second blessing. So, you know, they prayed for me. I felt like I had received this second blessing. I'd done everything I could internally, but I didn't just speak in tongues. And for 15 years, I prayed, God, why don't I speak in tongues? And today, I'm happy to tell you, I do. I pray in tongues all the time. But it took 15 years for that gift to come. Now, Pastor Keith Ham, who is an associate pastor here for years, he speaks in tongues, he prays in tongues. But Louise, my wife, another pastor here at the church, she doesn't seem to have the gift of tongues. She's not just going to make it up. God may bless her with that, or he may not. See, now... I would say that every Christian is given this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that in no way is it a measure of maturity in Christ, whether I speak in tongues or not. It's a very important point. So as you can see, this passage is one where we want to work hard to understand what God is saying to us through this part of his word. What is happening here for these first believers outside of Jerusalem in the weeks following this first major outbreak of persecution is their experience one which we should see as normative for us does this set for us a, a pattern of conversion which we should seek to follow should this story set the rule or should Philip's experience with these first Samaritan believers be seen as an exception to the rule that God was actually doing something else here you see whenever we seek to understand a difficult passage like this. One of the first things we have to do is really understand, okay, what was happening in the context of the story, try to really get our, our heads inside and say, what is going on in the narrative? What did this mean to the first hearers? But also, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture. You can't take one verse and say, that can tell me how to live if it stands in opposition to a whole lot of other verses. We need to, to kind of find the whole counsel of Scripture. So let's break down exactly what is happening in this instance. Let's break this down. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. So Philip, Philip went, he preached the gospel, a whole heap of people respond. And he baptized in the name of Jesus. Then a message is sent to the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, the distance is about 55, 60 kilometers. So it's going to take, because I've got to walk, it's going to take maybe three days, maybe a week, for the message to get back to Jerusalem, for them to decide to come, and then they come back. Verse 15, as soon as they arrived, as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't put them through a course. They didn't interview them for membership. They didn't do any of that. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then look at what happens. Verse 16. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. So if you're asking that question, well, maybe he had come on them and we didn't kind of see it. No, it clearly says, for the Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them. For they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. 
So there's no question. In this instance, that's when they got the Holy Spirit. Can you see the problem? Can you see how this raises questions? When these people responded to Philip's preaching a week earlier, were they saved? I mean, if one of them had died during the week, would they have been eternally condemned? I don't know. But it seemed for them there was a two-step process. I mean, were their sins forgiven? Did they truly enter into the fullness of kingdom life? Did they truly receive eternal life in that moment of conversion? And if so, why had they not received the Holy Spirit? I mean, does not Paul, some years later, teach the Romans that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, he does not belong to Christ? That's what Paul said. Romans 8, 9. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And then in the book of Jude, we read that unbelievers are devoid of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's strong language, isn't it? Is it not? So clearly we can say that true conversion involves receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you are not truly saved. Paul also wrote to the Ephesians about the, the kind of oneness of entry into the kingdom of God. Have a look at Ephesians 4. It says, For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is a gift given to believers without exception. No conditions are attached to the gift of the Spirit except faith in Christ. And when he is given, it is for eternity. The believer, the one receiving this most amazing of gift, is changed forever. Never to be the same again. Now, Jesus said these profound words. Have a careful look at this. This is John 7. Jesus said, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And then John puts in par- little kind of you know, um, brackets here. He says, and when he said living water, it's like he's unpacking it for us. When he said living water, he's speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So just from those few passages, and look, there are a number of others which we don't have time to look at today. We can be very clear about the fact that a a person is baptised in the Holy Spirit the moment they put their faith in Christ, regardless of anything else. So what is happening here? We can't just ignore this part of the Scriptures. What is happening here for these Samaritan believers? And should we consider their experience in some ways a template for our own? I think not. I think that behind the narrative we see this very important turning point for the early church. They are on the journey of taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the nations. 
That's why this persecution has done. It's driven them out. The comfortable days of living in Jerusalem are over. The Holy Spirit is fulfilling in them Jesus' command to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is part of that journey. And I think God, in his wisdom, stalled the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on these particular believers to make a very important point, to, to make it blatantly clear to the apostles who you remember remained in Jerusalem that God's kingdom really is now available for all, Jews and Gentiles alike. You see, I think it's important for us to remember that only a, a couple of months before, Peter and John were travelling with the other disciples through Samaria with Jesus. Jesus is on his way from, from up north where, where he was born, and uh, not where he was born, but where he was raised, He's up in the north around Lake Galilee and he's making his way down to Jerusalem for the last time. And on his way, he goes through this region of Samaria. Have a look. In Luke 9, we have a record of it. It says, As the the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven. In other words, as the time drew near for him to go, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messages ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. So they're in Samaria traveling to Jerusalem. Verse 53, But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. You remember when Jesus was hanging out with that lady at the well, the woman at the well? And she, you know, they're having this conversation and she says, Oh, but you guys say we should worship Jerusalem and we say we should, you should worship on this mountain. So anyone that's on their way to Jerusalem, the Samaritans kind of shun. And that's Jesus. Jesus and his followers are on their way to Jerusalem, but they didn't welcome them. Do you see the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans? But have a look at what happens. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? (laughs) But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went to another village. I can't help wondering if it was the same village that Philip went to, full of all these demon-possessed guys and this sorcerer, Simon. Lord, should we just obliterate them? Guys, come on, we'll go to another village. I can't help feeling that the Lord Jesus may have withheld the spirit from these first converts in Samaria probably the same village, to make the point very clearly to his apostles, to James and John. And I don't think the significance of this would have been lost on them. The gospel really is for everyone, even the filthy Samaritans. So the apostles came to lay hands on these believers. And they did it. They laid hands on them. And they saw for themselves the Holy Spirit coming upon them in power. Now, we aren't told what happened. We're not given a description of how that manifested, but it was obvious. There was no doubt about what had happened. The good news really is for everyone, even these Samaritan dogs. Now, it's important to note that following this event, there's a change. 
in the way the believers behave. Following this event, as you read through the narrative in Acts, it's like there's this, this watershed moment. Following this event, ordinary, everyday believers are recorded laying hands on people and praying for them with great effect. Do you see, before this, when they needed someone to lay hands on, they just go, oh, hey, we, we need one of the apostles. Quick, send for one of the guys from Jerusalem. It takes them a week to get back. But you know, just, just in the, the next couple of chapters, we read about the conversion of Saul. You remember last time, three weeks ago, when we read about we read about Stephen being persecuted. It says there was this young man, Saul, who was agreeing with what was going on. Well, in a little while, we read about the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. Now, what's interesting is that when the guy who would ultimately become the apostle to the Gentiles is converted, the Lord Jesus appears to him, confronts him, says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he's struck blind. For a while. But the guy who Jesus sends to pray for the apostle to the Gentiles to have his sight restored is an absolute nobody. Ananias. He's just an every ordinary, everyday bloke who's come to follow Jesus. Do you see the change? The change has happened. Do you see how quickly things were changing for the early church? In chapter 8, the apostles have to travel to Samaria to lay hands on the Samaritans. Yet in chapter 9, very next chapter, it is very clear that God is going to use anyone he chooses to work in his power. He prays that his sight would be restored, and it is. And then Paul goes on to write most of the New Testament to spread the gospel all amongst the Gentiles. But you know, sandwiched between these two events, between chapter 8 and chapter 9, and this is where we've got to be careful we don't skim over bits of the Bible, sandwiched between those events, there's a little story about this miracle worker dude by the name of Simon. You remember him? He was, he's doing great things. He was supposedly the great one, the power of God. For many years, he's been doing magic tricks and, and, and people think he's wonderful but he says I'm going to follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit made sure that his story was kind of sandwiched in here so we need to just we'll have a quick look at this, this story about Simon and then we'll finish verse 18 says when Simon saw that the spirit was given when the apostles laid hands on people he offered the money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this. For your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you have said won't happen to me. 
After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. And they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Simon didn't repent. Simon didn't pray to the Lord, even though that is what Peter and John suggested that he do. Instead, Simon asked them to pray to the Lord for him. And Luke tells us no more about him. Instead, Luke chooses to tell us about how Peter and John stopped in many Samaritan villages and preached the good news about Jesus. Clearly, they had learned their lesson. The gospel really is for everyone, even these Samaritans. But what can we learn from the experience of Simon? Simon the sorcerer, because God includes his story for a reason. God puts it in there for a reason. And I guess the danger is that because Jesus makes the kingdom of God so available to us. I mean, everything which needs to be done has already been done for us. Christ's atoning work on the cross is all that is needed to wash away every mark of sin from our lives. His sacrifice for us is so adequate. We don't need to do anything. It changes our standing before God eternally. I guess because of all that, we can fall into the trap of somehow thinking that we can pull a swifty on Almighty God. That somehow we might trick him into thinking we're genuinely repentant. When really we're seeking our own agenda. That we might somehow kind of con our way into the kingdom of God because Jesus can't be all that smart. You know, I, I, I have a friend who has said to me, as long as I make it in by the skin of my teeth, you know, he wants to kind of push the sin thing to the very edge of, you know, I just want to keep sinning as much as I can, you know, to enjoy life. And that God will have to get me in and I'll get him on a technicality. You know, when I'm standing there at the pearly gates, I'll say, but hang, hang on, Your Honour. <laughs> Doesn't it say? My goodness. Who does Simon think he's dealing with here? He actually says he doesn't repent. He doesn't fall before God and beg his forgiveness. Instead, he tries to get around that by asking that Peter and John, men who are obviously mates with Jesus, that they might put in a good word for him. They might pull some strings. I mean, this is almighty God. Creator of the universe. But you know what? We can do exactly the same thing. We can do exactly the same thing. Do you really think you can pull a swifty on Almighty God? Do you really think that he doesn't see the real motives of your heart? Do you really think that he doesn't see what is going on between you and him? Do you really think he doesn't see the truth about you? I mean, it is all about relationships. It is not about a contract. 
So sometimes I think we, we approach it like that. We say, no, I've signed this contract and God, you've got to come through because I acted out the terms of the contract. It's all about relationship. It's all about the reality of your relationship with Jesus. Now, I think there is, if there's one lesson we can learn from the story of these Samaritan believers, and particularly the story of Simon the sorcerer, is that you don't mess with God. You just don't mess with God. We need to continually come back to just who this is we are dealing with here. He sees through all the pretense. He sees to the very core of your heart. He sees whether there is integrity in your relationship with him or not. You know, I have no doubt that he saw the lingering racial prejudice in the hearts of the apostles. Remember, it wasn't that long ago when they wanted to call down fire from heaven. But now in love, Jesus sends them right into the heart of their prejudice. And he confronts their sinful attitudes to give them an opportunity to repent. And that's what they did. We don't hear about it, but I have no doubt there would have been much confession of sin on behalf of Peter and John as they made that journey through Samaria preaching the good news. So what should we do? If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I think that some levels I may be trying to just pull a swifty on God, that I might be somehow trying to con my way through all of this. Well, the text tells us what to do in verse 22. It says, repent of your wickedness and pray to God. It's very simple. You know, someone once said, repentance is just agreeing with God. I think that's true. It's very simple, isn't it? Repentance is agreeing with God. Because I think we are so sinful, we are so deceived, we often don't even see it. We can't see it. What we need is the Holy Spirit to reveal us to us. And often he does that by his word, which is a mirror. It actually shows us, as we look at God's word, it shows us who we are. And so when it says very clearly, repent of your wickedness, what it's saying is agree with what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart. So if there is a word in your heart saying, you know, Murray, there's that, thoughts you had there about that person all this it's all bad there's that behavior there's that attitude i want to listen to that because the holy spirit will just tease out one thing at a time and when we repent i want to say yes you're right yes you're right do you see the difference between the apostles who clearly it's not explicitly stated, but clearly they went, yes, we were going to call down fire from heaven. What were we thinking, Lord? Take us to another village so that we can tell them about the love of Jesus. 
You see the contrast between that, that, that behaviour and Simon's where we don't hear anything more about him. So this morning, if the word of God has confronted you about, I guess, the integrity of your relationship with him, my challenge to you is simply wake up. Wake up to yourself and rethink just who it is that we're dealing with here. This is Jesus. This is the one through whom all things were made. This is the one for whom all things were made. The one who sees all, the one who knows all, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's spend some time in prayer. As the Holy Spirit speaks to you now, just in the silence, Lord, I pray that you would be just teasing out something in us that needs to be dealt with, some area where there's a falsehood, a lack of integrity. And I would challenge you to just just simply say, Yes, yes, Lord. Yes, you're right. You're right about that. That needs to change in me. Lord, I can't change that on my own. But through your Holy Spirit, which I know I have living in me, You can change me. You can change that part of me. Lord, I want to repent. I want to turn. That word means turn 180 degrees. I want to turn and I want to go the other way. Help me to do that. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that today we have seen truthfully your word and that we would receive it and that it would indeed change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.